Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So important now, folks, that we have just the right guest to advance this discussion. Lizanne Saunders is the Charles Schwab, and of course, within her work on the equity markets and all, uh, was a demonstrable economic voice to the George uh, Bush uh, administration of another time and place, maybe a Republican politics of another time uh, and place. Lizanne Saunders, I don't want to espouse that you're Republican or Democrat, but you did uh, serve on a number of panels, committees uh, for President uh, Bush. What I'm seeing in the five Trump tweets this morning is a completely non-Republican trade ethos. What is the ethos that you see from the president? Well, I think Tom, I think you you touched on it, which is mercantilism. Um, you know, that was that was a pretty dominant uh, economic theory in the 15th to the 18th century, certainly around uh, Europe. Tariffs were generally a big part of that. If you want to uh, speak more broadly about moving from globalization to regionalization or nationalism, um, that clearly is what the uh, United States is doing now. But it's not it's not just the domain right. of the United States. This move toward nationalism is a, is a global phenomenon. And I think there's yeah. long-term implications that are lost in the shroud of the near-term impact of this trade war. This is from tweet two to tweet three, quote, with the over $100 billion in tariffs that we take in, we will buy agricultural products from our great farmers. The, the idea that we take in tariffs from China is the heart of the discussion, isn't it? But it's, it's not the reality of how tariffs work, of course. In fact, um, there's some attention, uh, rightly so, on a fairly new paper put out by the NBER. As a reminder, they're the bureau that dates uh, recessions, and it, it looks at the impact of the tariffs that have kicked in so far and who is boring the brunt of those. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to people who really do the work and understand this, that the brunt of the higher prices is being borne by the U.S., U.S. Uh, importers, U.S. consumers. And uh, that is something, as we look at these additional tariffs, which increasingly affect consumer goods, I think will be increasingly felt kind of on the ground by so-called Main Street. It, it's been a more esoteric thing, I think, uh, for a lot of consumers uh, so far. But but assuming they actually kick in um, and aren't pulled back, then uh, we're at the point in this this game, if you want to call it that, where it will actually start to uh, bite in a more concrete, noticeable way. Lizanne, let's talk about what this means for markets. Four days of losses on the S&P 500. Futures just a little bit softer this morning, down a quarter of 1%. What's the message for clients this morning? Well, I think this is more than just about uh, trade, quite frankly. I think that, that that represents maybe the shorter term wiggles as it relates to market volatility. But you know, the rally off the Christmas Eve low started in, in a very healthy fashion. Breath measures were, were quite strong. It was not accompanied by excess optimism. So you, you kept sentiment sort of in the favor of the bulls because there was this maybe health, healthy skepticism that accompanied the first couple of months of the rally. More recently, though, speculation started to kick in. You saw record levels of uh, speculative shorts on the volatility index, even beyond where we were in January of 2018 that, of course, 
led to the short vol implosion of, uh, of February. You were seeing it in behavioral measures of sentiment, attitudinal measures of sentiment. Of course, valuations had gotten not terribly stretched, but stretched enough that we were probably at the point where you needed earnings to start to do some of the heavy lifting. That valuation expansion purely based on macro factors was probably at its maximum point. So I think aside from trade, there were maybe reasons for the market to take a little bit of a breather here. This just represented sort of the kicker of the catalyst. There was a hope, a belief perhaps, that in the second half of this year, we would get a stabilization in the global economy, maybe even somewhat of an acceleration. Those hopes have been dimmed somewhat as the week has grown older. HSBC come out with the following this morning and say, our economists expect global growth to remain subdued in the coming quarters and a significant rebound in the data seems unlikely. This then means that the current outperformance of risk assets such as global equities versus global sovereigns may have to retrace in the coming three to six months. Does that resonate with you? It does, but the factor that we think that is most relevant to how non-U.S. will perform relative to U.S., and this is the the day-to-day domain of uh, of my colleague, who you guys know, Jeff Kleintop, but is the uh, what's going on in the currency markets. I, I think a you know an increase in the dollar from here. That, that brings back the era of last year where you had the pickup in the dollar and you had dollar-denominated yeah. debts coming due and a funding crisis. Um, that, could, that could resonate again uh, across emerging markets, yeah. particularly the weaker ones, and uh, kind of reignite a period like we saw last fall where you saw significant underperformance there. So, so uh, you know, it's, uh, it's related to trade, of course, but I think currencies hold yeah. key to uh, performance comparisons. Too short today, Liz and Sanders. Thanks, Liz. We would be thrilled to have you and Mr. Klein up in studio to talk about uh, the perspective of Mr. Schwab's shop. Lizanne Saunders on the equity markets and on China. There's a small IPO. John, it was wonderful the day of the Facebook IPO to speak with Paul Kodrowski and David Kirkpatrick. And Kodrowski just said, no, it's way too early in the morning out here in you know the mountains of California, wherever the, the manse, the 8,000 square feet that Kodrowski lives in out in California. But Kirkpatrick darkened the door. And he darkens the door this morning. Yes. <laughs> David Kirkpatrick, Economy Media CEO and founder. David, great to have you with us. Let's I talk about the prices, shall we? I think I'm lightening the door today. Maybe. $45 a share, a market value of $75.5 billion, priced towards the bottom end of the range. And yet the one phrase I've heard again and again and again over the last 24 hours is, I don't get it. Hmm. And you don't that. get it either. I don't really get it. I mean, the, it's, a, it's a strange situation where it, a company that's really changed the way many of us live and changed even the layout of our cities um, may not ever be a really great business. And and the interesting thing is, if you look at the sort of history of Uber, it's often been talked about as sort of the next great company of the internet, a la Google and Facebook. And ultimately, it is in a way lower margin business that which really doesn't have the essential elements that have created those colossi. So I don't see it as a trillion dollar company ever. 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 You don't, do you think this Not company can do you, do you think, do you think no. this company can ever make money? 
I, I'm not sure of that. I, I think it's possible, you know, if they really cut costs and raise prices, yes. Is self-driving cars going to be the panacea? That's what they say. Uh, I don't really see that coming in any near term in, at, at scale that could really transform their business. Uh, I do think they're very enterprising. They write great software. Obviously, it's an impressive company. They've executed well. They did a great job getting rid of Kalanick and, and putting in Khazra Shahi. That was a smart move. They've got some really smart investors who've done super well in the private markets. Yeah. But I don't see the company's long-term prognosis being fantastic. I yeah, just don't. But your charm, besides writing the Facebook effect and we await the Uber effect and your uh, plane, uh, plane flying where you write uh, while you're on the plane. But David Kirkpatrick, you have mentioned before that their only weapon is heaven forbid to raise prices. Right. Well, why can't they do that? They own the market. Well, they can do it. I think they can do it, but that would slow their growth, which is something else that the markets now, public markets are going to demand because many people still are very attracted to these services, not just because they're more convenient, but because historically they have felt okay, very affordable. Not, but people aren't going to go out and buy taxi cabs again, or, you know, to a great extent. They raise prices and even sell that a part of it actually goes to these drivers well, working at eight or nine bucks an hour. Why don't they raise prices this morning? Well, I think they will raise prices. There's no question about it. And there's a lot of cities where the taxi industry is so poor that they will be able to get away with it. In a city like New York, that's going to be hard because the taxi industry is still good here. A lot of people have reduced their use of Uber and Lyft and started using taxis again because it's gotten more fair. Pro pro I take your price point competitive. On yeah, David, you made a point a couple of minutes ago that you've done well if you bought this in private markets. Right. There was a headline that crossed the Bloomberg about 24 hours ago, Lyft slipping below the last private market value of 15.1 billion dollars. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, when we always talk about the frothiness in, in markets, do we need to spend a little bit more time thinking about how much frothiness there is in private markets? Oh, totally. Before yeah. these companies become public companies. Well, that has been very, the reason we have to think that way has a lot to do with SoftBank and the Vision Fund, which has just thrown money at companies and has to do it at massive uh, scale or else they can't justify themselves as being a $100 billion entity. So I think we've seen valuations get really out of whack with reality for companies many companies, not all, that, 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 that have sort of been able to build a myth of being the potential next X, Facebook, you know, next Uber for the current generation of startups. But, but I, I don't think all of them have those opportunities. I think Silicon Valley's made a lot of ethical and strategic mistakes that are starting to become more apparent. And these valuations yeah. may have been over much. I, I want to interrupt here, John. Uh, the president's tweets have changed the time clock. On Twitter, there's a time element that shows you how long the tweet has been out. And I believe that the set of five tweets changed two minutes ago where maybe they went in and redid a typo or redid some language. I'm not sure of that, but I do want to report. It's a report that the time clock on the president's tweets have changed from 40 minutes ago to like two minutes ago. I see the same thing. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think you can edit tweets though, Tom. Oh, you know, you delete them and then redo it. Oh, right. So he's, re he's, he's retweeted them. Is that what you're saying? I don't know if he's retweeted them or he deleted them and then retweeted a corrected copy. I don't it see doesn't say the that. material substance of it changing, I didn't though. Say, but I'm just pointing out the time clock change. Okay. 
All right. Can I say something about that? It's interesting. Twitter and Uber have certain things in common. They are absolutely central to the infrastructure of many of our lives. Right. But they may not be gigantic, okay. fantastic businesses. David Kirkpatrick, honored to have you here this day of the IPO. RBC Capital Markets Chief U.S. Economist. Feeling very sorry for me. Tom, your read on the data, please. Hey, good morning. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's, you know, sort of more or less consistent with our broader view, right, that you are going to see some uh, energy price uh, impact on the headline. You know, core is a little light relative to our own expectations. Uh, I, I haven't seen the details yet. I'm actually out of the office today, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look to that, uh, look into that more to see, you know, where the miss was from a core perspective. But nevertheless, you're still running at, you know, sort of uh, around 2% from a year over year basis perspective. Uh, you know, nothing has really changed from an inflation narrative, uh, at least not based on today's numbers. Let's go to first principles, uh, Tom Purcelli, and uh, we thank you for your perspective. Chairman Powell mentions trimmed CPI series. What's the difference between the Dallas trimmed or the Cleveland CPI and the data that came out two minutes ago? Yeah. I mean, look, all all he's trying to do is he's trying to say, if we strip out some of the volatile components, um, you know, what is the underlying run rate from an inflation perspective? And and we're totally sympathetic from that um, uh, uh, to that. So we actually have a a sort of another way of of looking at it. And and, and we actually wrote about this uh, um, within the last week. You know, if if you just strip out so we look at the volatile components versus the non-volatile components to to sort of really get a good sense for. Um, what's, you know, how inflation is actually evolving. Um, and the volatile components have actually been pretty volatile. Uh, uh, and so from that perspective, I think, you know, Powell's in the right to, um, to sort of, you know, label this transitory. Right, but again, right. let's, let, let's be clear. Um, I think one of the reasons why he's really trying to drive this transitory idea home is because I think he's actually trying to move people away from the idea of thinking that the Fed is inclined yeah. to cut rates right now. I mean, I think he's trying to balance that equation to some extent. And, and John Farrell, what's important here is when you look at the volatile and transitory CPI statistics, one of them is Madrid hotel rooms. They're not transitory, or are they? No, they're just a one, they're a moonshot. They, they will, for when you and I go to Madrid. Those inflationary forces will fade it, it, after the those, Champions League that, that's final. That's the rumor. That's, that's right. what Chairman Powell says. Okay. Usually transitory when we are below target, not above it. Oh, that's that, a that good question. That seems to be the bias of the are Federal we Reserve. Cement, but this is really, John, John you know, laughs into this, but Tom Porcelli, this is a really important question. Are we symmetric yeah. right now? No, I mean, look, it, it, it's interesting. Um, and, and this is something this is something we've been talking about with clients for uh, for the last uh, couple of days um, here uh, in, in Canada. I think what people have to keep in mind uh, is that there's this notion that the Fed is willing to let um, inflation run, run a little hotter, um, to make up for previous um, shortfalls from an inflation perspective. We found it really interesting that Brainerd sort of threw a bunch of, who's a dove, Threw a bunch of cold water uh, on on that idea, um, which again we're 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 totally sympathetic to. Um, so I, I I would say that if you look at it from a, a pure what is the Fed's mandate perspective, 
it is actually quite clear that it is entirely about inflation right now, right? Like, I think the growth part of the mandate uh, is not being used at all. Uh, so I do think it's about inflation. And that's an important point to draw out because what I would say is this. If you think about the Fed's um, uh, um, their reaction function to either cut rates or to yeah. raise rates, I think the hurdle is incredibly high for the Fed to cut rates. I think you would actually need a, a pretty material down leg uh, in inflation from yeah. here at the core level. Um, yeah. And I think the opposite is true, too. I think you would actually need a pretty significant increase uh, in inflation uh, for the Fed to actually restart yeah. the hiking cycle. So, it, you know, I think it all points to the sort of the same conclusion, okay. which is to say uh, the Fed is on hold. Okay, we've got to leave it there. Tom Purcelli, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. Uh, up in uh, Canada with RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada Capital uh, Market. Right now, Devin McDermott joins us with Morgan Stanley, head of North American Exploration and Production Research uh, at Morgan Stanley. I'm going to make it real clear, folks. Don't email me for the Morgan Stanley brilliance. You must get that through Morgan Stanley. We protect the copyright of all of our guests. Devin, I'm going to be real clear. You got an overweight on Chevron and an overweight on Oxy. Am I correct on that? That's right, Tom. Give me the one. Give me the excuse me, give me the why on Occidental. So on Occidental here, we've seen the stock underperform the rest of its peers in the oil space pretty significantly over the last few weeks, in a large part due to uncertainty around this fairly unique M&A situation we watched play out. Yep. And where the stock sits now, it has one of the strongest dividend yields in the sector in the mid-5% range. That dividend is now comfortably covered on the back of this Anadarko deal now moving forward. And there's attractive accretion that I think the market will begin to price in as we go through the next several weeks. Shareholders, the core shareholders of Oxy, some were frustrated by the way this uh, deal process played out. But I think most will stay with the stock. And sentiment has been turning more positive in my conversation with investors over the past few days here in particular. Two questions then. The synergy word. I hate the word synergy, folks, but it actually works here. The Venn diagram of Anandarko layering over Occidental. How much synergy can they get? Can you give us a billion-dollar number of costs they take out? Yeah, so the target that Oxy's laid out is $2 billion for this acquisition, and about half of that is true capital synergies, so making the operations more efficient, and the other half is cutting costs. And looking at Anadarko, it was somewhat of a unique situation, but one thing that stood out at that company is the overhead costs we're much higher than a lot of the peers yeah, in the industry. Yeah. And that does create nice opportunities for synergy. So we do think that okay. that level is achievable. But, but give me a nudge here. Are, are you nudging $2 billion of synergies out to 2.2, 2.3, 2.5, readjust out 36 months? So I think the $2 billion is a realistic number here. In the case of Chevron, had that deal move forward acquiring Anadarka, we yeah. think there was more upside to synergies given there was more portfolio overlap. But for Oxy, I think $2 billion okay, is that. Okay, sure. But you see how Devin talks here, folks. He's got to be really careful here. There's a lot of constituencies involved. I don't want to get him in trouble uh, at Morgan Stanley. Devin, the other thing you've got in your research note, which is brilliant, is Mr. Buffet gets an, a lovely preferred overhang, as you call it. I love that phrase. Mr. Buffett gets paid first, right? 
Yes, Mr. Buffett gets paid uh, before stockholders or equity holders in this situation. Uh, one of the developments over the past two weeks that came to a surprise, or as a surprise to us and a lot of investors, was the preferred equity arrangement between Mr. Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway and Occidental. Yeah. $10 billion, 8% yield for 10 years. And he got uh, about 10% of the stock or 10% of the market cap in warrants at a little bit above where Oxy was trading at the time, 6250 Wow. So that does create wow. an overhang for the stock around that price. A little bit over 10% where Oxy trades today. Have you done his total return when he cashes in those warrants yet? Have you done the math yet of, of what we We have run? not run that math at this point, no. Yeah, fair. Okay, this has been a little distracting to say. And today, <clears throat> Oxy's trading below yeah. the strike price for those warrants. Yeah. So we, we'll have to see how Oxy trades over the next yeah. few months, few quarters, and it'll be somewhat oil-dependent given the uh, the linkage between Oxy's profitability and where oil prices trade. With this transaction, is Occidental Program, uh, Petroleum, going back to Mr. Hammer, do they enter big oil today? Are they big oil all of a sudden? They have moved into that big oil category, yes. They will be one of the largest U.S. companies, falling actually right behind Chevron in terms of total production. So we have uh, Exxon, Chevron, and then, then Oxy uh, in number three slot after this deal. I, I see the five-year dividend growth of 3%. That doesn't get it done. And granted, you know, there's a new religion on use of cash, and maybe oil sustains at $70, $80 a, a barrel. Do you just assume a truncated dividend growth given all the new constituencies, including Mr. Buffett, or can they actually ramp up dividend growth, which is what institutional investors care about? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. And prior to this deal, one of the headwinds for Oxy was challenges growing the dividend. The The dividend was covered within organic cash flow, but just barely. Yeah. And I mentioned earlier that Anadarko, given the synergies, given the portfolio overlap, and given the, the deep discount that Anadarko traded at prior to this deal, creates better dividend coverage and better free cash flow for Oxy going yeah. forward. So we do see a better pathway yeah. to dividend growth post this deal than we did looking at Oxy standalone. Where's the next Anadarko out there? Have you published on 1020? And, and Devin McDermott, folks, and his team is so good at this because they're not only looking large cap big oil, but they're looking at everybody else. Where's the next Anadarko out there? Do you have one, two, three, four strong buys in the smaller oil patch? Yeah, it's a great question as well. And we've done several M&A screens looking at what has similar characteristics to Anadarko and also what would be a strategic fit to some of the big oil companies yeah. out there that might be looking to expand mm, in shale. There's one that stands out with Anadarko-like characteristics, and that's Noble Energy, yeah. another one of our overweights. And they have a position in the Permian, just like Anadarko, yeah. also exposed to Colorado. And then you couple that strong U.S. onshore business with international, very cash-generative assets. And Noble is a big developer in the Eastern Mediterranean. They're yeah. developing a mega project into Israel. Very strong free cash flow profile. Okay, great, it trades at a deep discount to the sum of the parts here. Is, but is the behavior change for Mr. Stover and Mr. Smolik at Noble? Is the behavior change with this transaction? No, I wouldn't say the behavior changed uh, with this transaction. And it's hard to say when the next M&A deal in the space might happen. Overall, we think consolidation makes sense over time. But Anadarko, as I mentioned, is a unique situation. It's yeah. not the beginning of this yeah. new M&A or consolidation wave in this space. Deals okay. will be opportunistic from here rather than a consolidation theme in the short term. Devin McDermott, thank you so much with Morgan Stanley today on Chevron, on Total, on Anadarko, and the view forward for American oil. 
thrilled that David Wu could join us on this historic day. He is uh, head of global rates, FX, and emerging market fixed income strategy uh, at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, which barely describes his contribution to the discourse, the global discourse of all that we do. David, since I spoke to you three hours ago, we have had, I think it's 10 or 11 tweets, and they center around a mercantilism. And I got to be careful here, folks. It's not even rigid, pre-Ricardian, Elizabethan mercantilism. It's the president's view of the trade world. David, will you've seen those tweets. How do you translate them for the global economics and business community? I think, you know, listen, I, I, Tom, thank you so much for having me again. I mean, I, I feel like today is a sort of watching the Cuban Missile Crisis unfold in, in financial market terms. I mean, to me, it's interesting that, you know, that Trump's original tweet was that when he said, oh, well, there's absolutely no, no need to rush. That was clearly, and that tweet got deleted. That was interesting because no need to rush could be basically interpreted as, oh, wow, you know, this thing is really going to go out of control. So I think the fact it got deleted, that actually, I think, you know, gives me some optimism that perhaps, you know, they're still going to try to deal basically in the next few days, three days. I think the issue here for the market is not that, the, you know, the issue is going to be today. If we're going to get a deal or not today, well, at least that, are we going to get an extension until basically Sunday so that, you know, Lil Hook can go back home with something enhanced. If there's no deal today and Lil Hook goes back to basically China over the weekend, empty-handed, that's when I become very worried because China will have to retaliate. But I think today is really, really important. The fact that Trump is rethinking about the message he's sending to the market, I think that is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it just tells you that, you know what, he hasn't completely made up his mind, and that shows some flexibility, and you need to be flexible going, to the, going down to the final stretch of this. So, David, what happens if we, at the end of today, we not only get no deal, but we get bad body language out of both sides as they, as they hop into their Ubers to head to the airport? Uh, what happens if it's just a real negative body language for the markets? I think that would be very bad. <laughs> There's no doubt that would be very bad. But, but again, you, if you recall, right, I mean, this is why I think the, the last time something like this has happened was on February 22nd. If you remember, Lil Ho was over here. You know, the tariff that Trump was threatening was going to kick in on March 1st, right? The meeting was not going that well. But however, there was a press conference late afternoon on Friday, you know, in the Oval Office with Lil Ho and basic trial, and they said they made enough progress for Lil Ho to extend his stay for two more days, and he stayed on Saturday and Sunday, and on Sunday, Trump tweeted saying that, well, you know, there was enough progress made that basically that the, um, the tariff has now been postponed. I think, you know, we've seen this movie before. I'm hoping that, you know, this is the script we're going to basically follow. And I think, you know, it feels to me, I mean, certainly, I, let's put it this way, the fact that the market's up today, if, I mean, you know, U.S. futures down a bit, but Europe and Asia generally up today, and then in general, the market's right. quite calm. The market, I suspect, is looking right. at that script to basically follow. David, let's go to the David Wu research report we're going to see, which is a tool that the Chinese have, whatever the outcome is renminbi appreciation and depreciation, not devaluation, folks, but modest management of their currency. How much would they depreciate the currency given a bad Trump outcome? I think we'll be at least 2 or 3%. 
I mean, I mean, to the extent that if there's, I mean, you know, Tom, I mean, I, I, you know, I've been talking, I think the most interesting thing about this market is the fact that different markets have been pricing very different probability of a deal being done. And I think every investor would agree that the Chinese stock market was pricing in the highest probability of a deal being done. And this is also the reason why the Chinese stock market has now basically lost about half of the gains, okay, in the last three or four trading days that it made basically since December. And I think from that point of view, if there's no deal, I think Chinese market is going to be the most vulnerable. The RMB is probably going to weaken on its own. And the point here is that Beijing is unlikely to intervene to stabilize or support the RMB. So I think the RMB from that point of view will be down probably two or three percent at least if there's no deal. Whereas if there's a deal, to the extent the Chinese don't want to see a stronger RMB, I, I think you know the upside for the RMB is limited. This is why this is sort of an asymmetric, yeah. basically, um, I think, balance of risk here. David Wu, thank you so much for your contribution to the show on this historic day. Dr. Wu is with Bank of America, Maryland. So look for David Wu out on all of our services and, of course, our podcast as well. We thank Oppenheimer Funds for their support of our digital product. It's made a huge, huge uh, difference. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.